This morning, we return to our study of the book of Luke, and today we come to the very end of that enormous part of the book of Luke that we've been studying together for months. Ten chapters, 41% of the book dedicated really to two things. Number one, it tracks the final journey of Jesus from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south where he will be crucified. That's where he's going, and he has not been unclear about that, incidentally. But then number two, it's used to teach us something. And the overarching topic, the big idea of this whole thing that we've been developing now for months is what does it look like or what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And so then practically speaking for our purposes today, Jesus himself is going to give us the final puzzle piece and the puzzle picture of a follower of Jesus. And I'm going to warn you in advance, it is a significant piece of the puzzle because Jesus, son of God, king of kings, Lord of lords, who will yet one day return is telling us that when he does, he will divide humanity into three categories. And all of us, everyone, everywhere will fit into one of them. And here they are. Category number one, faithful servants of Jesus. And I want to pause and develop that a little bit, okay? I want to tell you what it's not so that you can see what it is. A faithful servant of Jesus is not somebody who in their own strength, who in their own efforts, by their own initiative and determination is resolved to follow Christ, to be obedient to Jesus and really for their own aim. Lord, I'm going to pray a lot. I'm going to study your Bible a lot. I'm going to come to church a lot. I'm going to go out and do things a lot. I'm going to tell people about you. I'm going to do all of these things subconsciously hoping that by doing that, I can transform our relationship. I can change you from being my king to my servant. What I'm really hoping is that at some point I've done enough for you that you'll then do what I want you to do for me. It's sneaky. We all do that. That's why when something tragic happens in our life, we're like, hey, man, I think I deserve better than this. No, actually, you don't. Faithful servants of Jesus realize that, that we have nothing to offer Christ but our filth. And that in Christ, by his grace, we have absolutely everything. And that absolutely everything will manifest itself in our lives now, yes, but but even more so as we live forever and ever and ever with him, watching to see how his wisdom, his governance over our lives, pays literally dividends. It's astonishing. So faithful servants of Jesus are those who, by the power of Jesus' spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, who in accordance with Jesus' word, the word of God that we're to allow to dwell in us richly, that in community with one another, for he's given us his spirit, he's given us his word, and he's given us each other. And all three of those things are significant gifts. Okay, you ready? As an outpouring, as an irrepressible expression of our love for him, because we cannot help ourselves, serve him. Jesus comes to us and he says this. He says, if you love me, now don't miss this, this is big. If you love me, you, what's the next word? Do you know what it is? It's a very definitive word. If you love me, you, here we go, will keep my commandments. Not you might consider it, you know, and every once in a while you'll throw me a bone. No, 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 no. You will keep my commandments. Now, you won't keep them perfectly, but here's what you will do as the Spirit of God works in you, as His Word forms and shapes you, as you live in community with people who call you out on your sin and preach the gospel to you and come and find you when you've wandered and pull you back onto the path of following Christ. Here's what will happen. You will see that over the course of your life, as the Westminster Confession of Faith beautifully says, you learn to die more and more unto sin and live more and more into righteousness. 
crucifixion and life, crucifixion and life, as you're crucifying the old you and living a new you in Jesus. Okay, Jesus is going to give us the final piece of this puzzle picture, which is the picture of the follower of Christ. And with this puzzle piece, this parable that he's going to give to us today, he's going to divide humanity into three categories. Number one, it's the one you want to be in. Probably you know that. Faithful servants of Jesus. Okay, number two, unfaithful servants of Jesus. People who misunderstand him, people who don't really get his heart, people who live not for him but for themselves with what he's given to them, and people who will suffer, as we'll see, loss in the end, regrettable loss, oh, good grief, I wish I had done it different kind of loss. And then lastly, category number three, those who refuse to acknowledge Jesus as king, period, but who, as we will see, get him as king in the end anyway. So three categories, faithful servant, unfaithful servant, and yeah, I reject his kingship altogether. And you say, all right, well, before you continue, Tom, faithful is measured against what? Like, what's the standard? I'm faithful or I'm unfaithful if I, what is it? And the standard, I think, is the final concluding statement that Jesus gave to us last week, standing in the household of Zacchaeus in the city of Jericho, 17 miles from Jerusalem and from the cross. Jesus said this, Luke 19, verse 10. He said, for the Son of Man, that's Christ, came into this world to do what? Because it is the mission statement of Jesus, but not just of Jesus, and that is a major point. It's my mission statement. It's your mission statement. It is the mission statement also of every follower of Jesus. Guys, Jesus goes to Jerusalem. He suffers. He dies. He's buried. He's raised. He ascends into heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. And then what do his people go out and do? Read the book of Acts. They go out doing the works that Jesus was doing. They go out preaching the gospel that Jesus was preaching They go out to seek and save the lost. We are to go out to seek and save the lost. He's giving us a mission statement that's not just His. For the Son of Man, that's Christ, came into this world. Now, here's the mission statement for Him, for those people who listened to that on that day, and for us today, to seek and to save the lost. That's the mission, and it's against that standard that our faithfulness or unfaithfulness, in the end, will be measured. And so, with that ringing in our ears, you ready? We continue in verse 11, where Luke says this. He says that as they, meaning the disciples of Jesus, heard these things, this mission statement of Christ for him, for them, for us, Jesus then proceeded to tell them and us a parable. And here's why he tells the parable. Because being in the city of Jericho, he was near to Jerusalem and thus also to the cross. And because even though he has said to these guys again and again and again and again, hey, guys, I'm going to Jerusalem, okay, have a seat, to die on the cross, All right, even though that was the case, they, his disciples, still wrongly supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, and here's what that means. These guys who have been with Jesus for three years and have watched Jesus, now consider this, heal the sick, cure the wounded, raise the dead, and feed literally an army worth of people a couple of times with a little boy's lunch. He's very attractive as a military messiah, is he not? Like who in the world, including Rome, could defeat the army of a man who raises the dead, who multiplies resources, 
who heals the sick and cures the wounded, my goodness, his disciples are still thinking, notwithstanding all of his teaching to the contrary, that Jesus, at this point in the narrative, is going to go up to Jerusalem, declare himself to be its king, and then militarily and politically deliver them from Rome by putting to death its soldiers in their midst, when in fact, Jesus is going up to Jerusalem to deliver them from sin and death. He's come to seek and to save the lost, meaning lost in sin and lost in death. And he's going to do that by allowing the soldiers of Rome to put him to death, you see. Ironically, at the insistence of the religious establishment of Israel that has rejected him as their king. But in the end, we'll get him as their king anyway. And so to correct this misperception on the part of his disciples, Jesus now gives us this parable, which again divides humanity into three categories, which you know, faithful servant of Jesus, unfaithful servant of Jesus, okay, no servant of Jesus at all, those who reject his kingship. And here's the parable, verse 12. Jesus said, therefore, a nobleman who represents Jesus in this story went into a far country which represents heaven to do what? To receive for himself a kingdom. That is to say, he goes to the far country to be proclaimed by a greater king, in this case, God the Father Almighty, to indeed be the king, and not just of Jerusalem, but of all of the heavens and all of the earth. Their vision of the kingship of Christ was so puny. He's so much greater than that. But what does Jesus do after he receives the kingdom? Well, at some point, he tells us right here. And then to do what? Because it's what we're all waiting for, to return. To return to the earth as its absolute and undisputed king. So what do we have thus far? We have a nobleman who is Jesus declaring to his disciples who think that he's going to Jerusalem to declare himself king and militarily and politically defeat Rome. Hey, guys, that's not what I'm doing. Instead, I'm going to seek and save the lost from sin and from death, and I am going to suffer and die and be buried to rescue my people from sin, and I'm going to be raised from the dead on the third day, even as I've told you several times now, that I might rescue my people ultimately from death itself and offer to them eternal life, after which I will ascend into heaven, the far country of heaven, where I will receive from God the Father Almighty, the great King, the throne not of Jerusalem, but of all of the heavens and all of the earth. And guys, then after that, a day is coming when I will return. And when I do, I will divide all of humanity into three categories. Now you get them, faithful servants, unfaithful servants, those who reject Jesus' kingship altogether. And we know that's what he's planning to do because he tells us in verse 13 that calling 10 of his servants, the idea being just prior to his departure to the far country where he will be declared king. The nobleman who is Jesus gave to them ten minas. So he's the nobleman who gives minas, whatever that is, and we'll develop it in a minute, to his servants for the purpose of building his kingdom by seeking and saving lost people. When? Between the time of his departure and the time of his return, which is what we today await. And then he said to them, and I love this, he said, engage in business. And that is not a suggestion. He's not coming to us and saying, hey, you know what? I know you've got a lot of plans. I know you have a lot of dreams. I know you're really busy and all that kind of stuff. And I was just kind of hoping that maybe, I don't know, possibly you might consider using all of the stuff that I gave you. And I mean, let's just be honest, that's everything you have. 
okay, if you could start to use that, maybe, I don't know, for a different purpose, throw me a bone every once in a while, you know, kind of come on, come alongside this effort and maybe, you know, work this stuff into your life. He's going, no, no, no. Here's why I've given you everything, everything for this. Engage in business, he says. It's not a suggestion. It is an imperative. Until when? Until you get tired, until you retire. Is that the way that it works? No, you never retire from this. Until you retire in death. Engage in business until I come back. The point being, for I am coming back. And the question then is, all right, well, what's Amina? Because I don't know about you, but I kind of want to know if I have any of those things. And because I'm getting the point, Tom, that, you know, I don't know, I think I'm supposed to be busy with them about the business of Jesus and, and building of his kingdom and seeking and saving the lost and all that. And so what is Amina? In Jesus' day, within the context of the story, Amina represented a, a sum of money that was equal to about 100 days worth of wages for an average daily laborer. So a pretty good amount. And your Minas do include your money. We've talked about that the last couple of weeks. That is absolutely one of the things that God has given to you for the primary purpose, do you hear that? Of building his kingdom, of seeking and saving lost people. So that's one of the categories. It's not the only category. Listen, your mean is include your time. It's fascinating. When you read what the Bible says about time, when you read just what Moses says about time, go to Psalm 90 and read about time. Lord, teach us to number our days, we're told to recognize that we have a certain number of days that have been parceled out to every single one of us. And listen, not a one of us knows how many more we have, do we? Yet we have exactly the amount that God, who is sovereign over all things, has given to each and every single one of us. Every day matters. And here's why. Because every day is Amina. Every single one of them. God's like, here's another Mina. We wake up in the morning. Right on. Another day to do what? To serve who? Think about that. Your Minas include your talents, your gifts, and your abilities. And this is a gifted, able group of people. My goodness. It's remarkable. It's overwhelming. How are you employing them? All right, let's move beyond that. Those are the ones we typically talk about. Time, talent, treasure. I think your mean is include your passions and not the ungodly ones, but the godly ones. You know, David comes to us, Psalm 37, verse 4, and he says, hey, let me tell you something about your desires. When you delight yourself in the Lord, God gives you those desires. Your heart becomes more like his heart. Your passions become more like his passions. Your desires, you see, become his desires, and you need to begin to pay attention to those desires. When you develop a desire, a heart you know, for the poor, when you develop a heart for kids who need a home, when you develop a heart for somebody in your office or maybe for the whole office to find Christ. That's a pretty good clue that that's what the Lord would have you to work towards, to work on. That passion itself is a mean and not to be ignored, but to be employed your mean is include your life experiences that God himself has sovereignly ordained for you and by which he has shaped you and molded you and given you all kinds of skills and wisdom and all sorts of other things. How are you employing those things? Your mean is include your failures. Probably you weren't expecting that, but it does include your failures. Why? Because everybody's a failure. All of us fail in little and in big ways. 
And if we're willing to take our failures and not be so ashamed of them, that we're unwilling to speak of them, that we do everything we can to hide them, that we put them behind us and pretend like they've never occurred, but instead we hold them with an open hand and offer them to the Lord, what we'll discover is that those failures oftentimes become the bridge between us and other people with similar failures or maybe just similarly sized failures. And then we have the opportunity to walk over that bridge in sincere relationship, authentic love for that person and share with them that the only true success is the one that you find in Jesus. Your mean is also include all the ways that other people have failed you, have treated you terribly, have abused and mistreated you, which only makes sense if you think about it. I mean, who better to minister to the sexually abused than those who have themselves been sexually abused and then have walked through a season of healing with their Lord? have found life on the other side of it. Who better? Who better to minister to the betrayed and the divorced than those of us here today? And there's a lot of us who have been betrayed and divorced and have had God come along and do for us what only God can do. You know, like Humpty Dumpty, all the king's horses and all the king's men, they couldn't put them back together again. Yeah, God takes our shattered heart that we can't put back together again. And he begins to piece it together, you see. Who better to minister to people in that shattered condition than than you if you've been mended. Who better to love and to care for, to understand and to walk alongside those of us who have been marked by abortion and it leaves a mark. And to say anything other than that is honestly dishonest. It's abject silliness. It leaves its mark. Who better to walk alongside, to love, to understand to care for people who have been marked by that and not in a positive way than those of us who have been marked by that and have found that Christ takes that mark too and he washes it away with his blood on the cross. It is an amazing, incredible mina. So what's my point? My point is, what are your minas? What are they? Because whatever they are, Man, they are the very things that God has entrusted to you. It is a trust. And that He is calling you to engage in the business of building His kingdom by seeking and saving lost people. And so then Jesus says, verse 12, that calling ten of His disciples, or His servants rather, just prior to His departure, this departing nobleman who was Jesus, gave to them ten minas and then said to them, use these minas to engage in the business of building My kingdom by seeking and saving lost people until I come back. Because that's what faithful as opposed to unfaithful servants do. But what about those people that reject Jesus as king altogether? Well, that's who he describes next. He says, but his citizens, it's a change in language, isn't it? It's not servants. He doesn't say, but his servants. He says, but his citizens. And the difference is servants in that culture were members of the household. Citizens were people who lived in the realm over which the king was in fact the king, whether they liked it or not, whether they bought into his leadership or not, whether they sought to acknowledge it or not. He was the king. But his citizens hated the nobleman, Jesus says. And notice this, they sent a delegation after him to the far country, saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. It's fascinating. Jesus pulls this right out of the real-life experiences of the people of Jericho. Like as soon as he tells this story, they look at the pattern of this story and they recognize 
the pattern of this story because they had lived the pattern of the story. And I say that because when Herod the Great, who had a huge empire in Palestine, died, his huge empire was divided up amongst his sons. They all got a piece of it. And then they all had to do what Herod the Great had had to do to receive his huge empire in the first place. They all had to travel to the far country of Rome and appear before the far greater king who is Caesar. And Caesar then conferred upon them this new territory, this kingdom of theirs. Well, here's the deal. When Herod died and his kingdom was divided up, they realized, "Uh uh-oh, this guy Archelaus, one of his sons, Yeah, he's going to get the region that Jericho's in, that's Jerusalem is in, and that some other cities are in. And Archelaus had already proven himself to be just like his father, a a tyrannous madman. He had slaughtered 3,000 of them already by this point. So when Archelaus with his brothers go to Rome to receive from the far greater king, who is Caesar over there in the far country, his kingdom, which would have included their city, they put together a delegation of Jews from Jerusalem and from Jericho and from these other cities and sent them after him to the far country, which is Rome, to appear before Caesar to let him know that, hey, you know what? We don't want this guy to reign over us. But guess what happened? Because it's kind of the point. They got him as king anyway. It's something to consider. Jesus Christ is king. He sits now upon the throne of heaven and earth, and he is king whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we like it or not, whether we want him to be or not. He just, he is. And to say that he's not is like saying to somebody, well, maybe it's Sunday for you, but it's not Sunday for me. Yeah, well, go to your office. You know, nobody's going to be around. It's going to be an odd day. No, it's Sunday for everyone. And he's either king for everyone or no one. Jesus is king. And what we need to be thankful for is that he's not like Archelaus. He's a king who comes giving. He's a king who comes rescuing. He's a king who comes saving. He's a king who lays down his life in love for his people who in love then, by the power of His Spirit, in accordance with His Word, and in community with one another, learn how better to serve Him because, you know what? It's the natural expression. It's the gesture of a saved soul. He's king whether we like it or not. But why would you not? Anyway, that's essentially what Jesus says next when he says this in verse 15. He says that when this nobleman, who again went off to the far country to receive his kingdom, returned, having what? Because here it is, received the kingdom. And now notice his first order of business. You're like, hey, what's Jesus going to do when he returns? Okay, here's the agenda. Number one, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money, the minas, to be called to him so that he might know what they had gained, the point being, for him by doing this business of building his kingdom by seeking and saving lost people. And the first servant came before him, and the first servant is really excited and has every reason to be. The first servant knows that his king is not like Archelaus. The first servant knows his king in a way that the unfaithful servant doesn't. And the first servant is right. He came before him saying, Lord, your one mina has made ten minas more. 
And the Lord, I think, who was even more excited, said to him, and now notice what happens. He says, well done, good servant, because you have been, what, faithful, there's the word, in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. So then, is the Lord taking or is he giving? Because it seems to me he got 10 minas and he gave away, in some sense, at least 10 cities. Is he one who comes to consume or is he one who comes to bless out of his generosity? It speaks to the heart and soul of this king. He's remarkable. So the Lord said to him, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little. You, have, you shall have authority over ten cities. And then the second servant, who's now really crazy excited because he just heard this, also came to him with excitement and he's saying, Lord, your one mina, okay, has made five minas. And the Lord said to him, and you, you are to be over five cities. Again, giving far more than he receives. And then another came, meaning another servant, but the word's omitted, isn't it? So careful. It's a change. You feel it as you read it. And then another came. Oh, okay. And he comes saying this, Lord, here is your one mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. I, I wrapped it up in a handkerchief and then, you know, then I, I hid it in the yard. I put it in a safe spot, which, by the way, was exactly what pretty much everybody would do back in that day. That's something to think about. I mean, if somebody came to you and they were going on a trip, they're your friend or your family member or whatever, and, you know, they don't want to bring all of their wealth with them. They just need to take a little bit. And so they come to you and say, hey, um, I want to give this to you to watch over for me while I'm gone. Here's what would almost always occur. You'd wrap it up in a handkerchief or put it in a bag or a box or whatever, and you'd go out in the backyard somewhere and you'd dig a hole and you'd put it in the hole and you'd cover it up and plant a bush on top of it or something, you know, so as to make it very, very secretive. And the reason you did that is so that you knew for sure that when that person came back, you could get out your shovel, you could dig it up, and you could give them 100% back what they had entrusted to you. That's not what the faithful servants do. It's ironic. I mean, if you think about it, the unfaithful servant actually seems to have taken, in some sense, the safest course. Because faithful servant number one could have invested his mina. Instead of having a 10 mina return, he could have had like a half a mina return. You know, I've gone backwards with your mina, Lord. I'm sorry. I'm significantly less excited than I would have been if I could have gone forward. Five mina guy could have had no mina. I invested it in the market. It was blue chips. I'm so sorry. It tanked. And who knew? Unfaithful guy takes the safest route. And it ends up being the unsafest route. He is strongly rebuked and marked for his unfaithfulness, which is instructive. What does that tell us? I think that it tells us that, guys, God is not giving us these minas for us to bury them in our self-conception. For us to bury them in self-serving ways. For us to bury them in our busyness or even in our business, which incidentally, as an aside, is itself amina, rightly employed at least. He's not telling us, hey, here's some minas, go bury them in your hobbies. There's nothing wrong with having hobbies or any of these things. He's looking for people who will take the minas that he entrusts to them and will risk them for him. As he directs, 
knowing that he is the sovereign over all the heavens and the earth, which means that he doesn't just govern over the financial economies of this world. He governs over the spiritual economies of this world. And so then, Lord, you've directed me to use my mean in this particular way. I'm going to use my mean in this particular way. And hey, you know what? All the pressure is on you, man. The results are yours. You'll need to create the economy that returns tenfold or fivefold or onefold or whatever. My calling in yours is to be faithful. And so Jesus says in verse 20, then another came saying, Lord, here is your one mina, which I kept laid away, all wrapped up in a handkerchief and then hidden in the ground. And here's why I did that as opposed to risking it. Because unlike these other servants, I, I, did, I didn't really know and understand you. I, I didn't, didn't get your heart. I, I thought you were a taker, not a giver. And, and maybe you were more like Archelaus than, than Jesus. And he frankly says, for I was afraid of you. For I was afraid of you. Should you be afraid of Christ? I mean, if you're afraid of him taking hold of your life and changing your plans, yes. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm living proof of that one. But afraid of the one who loved you so much that he laid down his life to claim you as his own, to purchase you out, not just of your sin, but out of your futility. Not just out of death, but out of meaninglessness and purposelessness. Are you afraid of that? Of His kindness, of His tender mercies, of His infinite grace, of His unbounding love. This guy is a servant, but he doesn't know his master very well. He says, for I was afraid of you. That's why I hid it in the yard. Because you are, at least, well, in my estimation, a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And so then the Lord said to him, oh, really? Okay, so that's what you think of me? All right, well, then fine. I will use your own words to condemn you. By your own words, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew, or at least you thought, that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Well, then if that's the case, why did you not at the very least put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might then have collected it with interest. And so the nobleman who is Jesus, after rebuking the unfaithful servant, said to those who stood by, take the one mina from that guy and give it to the one who already has 10. And they said to him, but Lord, he already has 10 minas. And then Jesus gives us the punchline. The nobleman who is Christ said, I tell you, that to everyone who has much to show for their faithful use of the minas that I've entrusted to them in this life, well, when I return, even more will be given. But from the one who has not, because he did nothing for my kingdom, with the minas that I entrusted to him, even what he has will be taken away. And why is that? Because to accept Christ and his salvation is to accept a trust. It is to sign up for his mission and to acknowledge that that that's actually the mission. Seeking and saving lost people through the mercies of Christ and through the message of Christ and one without the other in either direction is inadequate. It is to sign up and to say, you know what, everything I have comes from the Lord. It is all of it, Mina's. 
And here is the primary purpose for which he has given it to me. It is to build his kingdom by seeking and saving lost people and to do so knowing as a matter of fact that my king one day will return and it will be a day of either reward or loss based upon the faithfulness that I manifest to that task by the power of his spirit in obedience to His Word, in community with His people, and because my heart is so captured by this Jesus that honestly I just can't help myself. He inspires the very obedience that He then rewards, which makes it doubly gracious and makes Him doubly worth of our praise. Even what He has, Jesus says, will be taken away from Him. So that's what awaits Christ's servants upon His return. But as for the enemies of mine, Jesus says... These people who rejected me as their king, who did not want me to reign over them. Okay, brace yourself. Here we go. Bring them here and slaughter them before me. How do you like that one? It's uncomfortable, isn't it? Look, I don't think that's meant to be taken literally, and I say that without diminishing the fact that there are eternal punishments. (laughs) that either Christ bore the infinite eternal price for our sin or we get to bear it ourselves. It's pretty clear in the Bible. But I, I think what this is, is prophetic apocalyptic and therefore then by nature exaggerated language that is used purposefully by Jesus to get our attention, to wake us up to the fact that, first of all, there is a king, his name is Jesus. And in the end, as Paul says... Every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, the living and the dead, every human ever, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess in the end that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And oh, may we do it now. (laughs) Oh, may it be for us today and then something that we joyfully and willingly do as opposed to something that we look at in the end and go, well, I guess I don't have much of a choice. Because Jesus is king. And oh, what a wonderful king he is. What a glorious king he is. He's the king that everybody wants, or should. And secondly... He wants to shock and wake us up to the fact that, you know what, he's given each one of us minas and he expects us to invest them, to risk them, to entrust them, in a sense, to his economy, whatever that may be, to use them to build his kingdom by seeking and saving lost people, who he's making clear here too, apart from the saving mercies of Jesus, is found alone in his gospel, will in fact be lost, and not just in this life, but for all of eternity. It's a sobering and profound thought. And so then... First of all, have you bowed your knee to King Jesus and acknowledged him to in fact be king and realize that in doing so, yeah, you give him your life. But my goodness, look at what you get. It's remarkable. You get a life now and for all of eternity. And then secondly, how are you using the minas that King Jesus has given to you in light of their primary purpose? Building his kingdom. If you had to call it today, faithful servant, unfaithful servant, 
Or yeah, one who is still rejecting the fact that he's king. Because those are the categories, and the question, of course, is, all right, well then, which one am I, and which one are you? And it's a gracious question, because today we can, we can change. We can move. We can invest our lives in his kingdom and reap the reward that he alone deserves and yet freely gives to us in the end. So think about that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great Mina uh, himself, who is Jesus. Um, Lord, we praise you that you looked upon a world that had forsaken you, that had rejected you, that had moved away from you as king, as creator, as sustainer, as sovereign and yet in love for us, Lord, undeserving though we be. You sent your greatest treasure into this world to be poured out completely that we might be purchased, that we might be cleansed, that we might be redeemed, that our lives might be claimed and made useful, that we might spend our hours, our days, our time, our talents, our treasures, our passions, our experiences, redeeming our failures, and even the ways that we have been failed in this great and eternal process of building a kingdom that doesn't end with us, but ends in eternal glory. Lord, awaken us through this teaching as to who we are right now in terms of these categories. Lord, and as to who you are graciously allowing us, calling us to be or to be even more so of. God, by your Spirit, in accordance with your Word, in community with your people, and Lord, we need all of those things, inspire a love in our hearts that overflows in such a way that we cannot help but to offer more of ourselves to you tomorrow than we did today, and then, then more of ourselves the next day than we do tomorrow, and then more of ourselves and so forth, as we learn by your grace to die more and more unto sin, to crucify us, that we might live more and more unto you and experience what true life is all about. So do these things, we pray for your glory and for our good. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.